It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2022, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics, in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and Edison publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's jump into the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, Lee, just to start off, let's talk about, uh, let's start off this episode by talking about your column in California on your mind, entitled California Policies Are Devastating Hispanic Families, But They Can Do Something About It. Um, It's a fascinating essay. It's based on a conversation you had with a Hispanic man who You met at a high school tennis match in which his son's team was hosting your son's team in the California CIF playoffs. Um, You explained that the father of three runs a landscaping business and lives on a constrained budget in a high inflationary environment in a state which is delivering little in the educational, economic, and research needs of its residents. Uh, The man told you the following, I love this country. We are so lucky to live here. I vote for politicians who talk about freedom and lowering, lowering taxes and fixing up our city and making schools better and lowering gas prices and increasing water supplies, which is important to landscapers. But some of our friends vote blindly for Democrats because they say Republicans don't like Hispanics. They are racists. Um, Lee, did this conversation offer you a glimmer of hope that Hispanics, who you know make up 30% of eligible voters in the state, are not decisively in the camp of Democrats and can help break up the one-party monopoly in the state and ensure greater accountability for our elected office holders? John, you know, it, it was a fascinating conversation I had with this gentleman. It, we spoke only for about 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes during, during, a, during the, uh, a high school tennis match where, where my son was playing and, and the high school where this fellow's son was in was hosting the match and, and his son was playing. So we just, we just got to talking and he, uh, you know, he asked, uh, he was a friendly fellow. He asked me, I don't, you know, you're not from around here. I haven't seen you at the matches. I said, yeah, you know, I came down from Santa Barbara to, to watch my son. So we talked about being dads and he asked me what I did. And I said, you know, I teach economics at UCLA and I, I, I write a column for Hoover every week. And I, I told him what the column was about. And then he just, he just basically cordoned up, <laughs> invented about the challenges that he, he and his family were facing. And, uh, and, and, and interestingly, they were topics that, you know, we here uh, in, in this podcast have talked about many times and that Bill has talked about many times in his column and that I've talked about. Uh, and it is the simple fact that there are a ton of a ton of households. Uh, there's 13 million households in, in California and, you know, six or seven or eight million of those households are in the middle and in the middle in California means median household income, you know, somewhere around $80,000, $90,000 a year. And that sounds like a, a lot, but California is a very high cost state. And this fellow, for example, was making, you know, right around $75,000 running his own landscape, landscaping business. He had a couple of trucks. His wife managed the businesses with bookkeeper and, you know, sending out billing. And together, the whole... The whole enterprise brought in about seventy-five thousand uh, dollars after they paid, you know, after they paid expenses and paid their workers. 
And he told me, he said, you know, the house I live in is $2,800 a month, which, uh, and it's a small house. I've got three kids. We feel really constrained in this house, but I wanted to make sure that my family could live in a low crime neighborhood, safe from bangs, safe from crime, because sometimes I'm out at all hours. I might have to fix somebody's water leak. I want to make sure my family's safe. And he said, that's how much it costs to live here. Uh, and given his, given his household income, his monthly rent was definitely on the high side. And he talked about school quality. He's got three kids. And the high school where we were watching the tennis match, um, this was out in the Inland Empire. And he pointed to the buildings, including Quonset huts. Um, and he said, you can tell just how, look, look, look how old the school is. And, you know, sure enough, all the buildings needed maintenance. The school was extremely clean. And the kids at the school were extremely well-mannered, you know, a great bunch of kids, fantastic bunch of kids, almost all Latino kids with mm. a few Asian kids, basically, you know, no, no non-Hispanic white kids in the school. But the school, yeah, it didn't need just a facelift. It needed a lot of, <laughs> having visited the bathroom at these schools, they need a lot of investment and wa- walking into the gyms and so forth. Uh, and he talked about the teachers. A topic that we've that we've touched on you know many many times on on California on your mind and here during the podcast, we've talked about how poor families are the ones that really are disadvantaged by the fact that there's no competition within public A through twelve. There's no school choice for the most part. School uh, teachers unions protect poorly performing teachers through teacher tenure and merit based pay paying the best teachers what they're worth is, is, is virtually absent. And he told me, you know, he told me this fantastic story. He, he pointed to his son out there playing tennis. And he said, and his son was a senior. Um, and he pointed to his son and said, hey, last year, you know, my son took, my son took algebra two from a great teacher. And, he, and this teacher got my son excited about math. He got an A. And this teacher was, you know, this guy wasn't, he called him a kid. You know, this fellow was probably in his, in his early to mid fifties. And he said, this, this kid, you know, a teacher under the age of 30, he said, now he's gone. He doesn't teach her anymore because he doesn't get paid enough. And he said, the bad teachers are all been here 35, 40 years. They're in their sixties. They're punching the clock. They don't care. They are not doing a good job. And he said, they can't be fired because they have this tenure. He said, I thought just guys like you college professors got tenure. And he said, you know, I don't understand this. He said, if my friends and I, he said, if my men and I don't do a good job in our landscaping business, you know, our clients will find somebody else to do. We have to perform. We have to deliver. But these teachers don't. And he talked about, crime issues. He talked about water issues as a landscaper, obviously, and we're in another, you know, we're in another drought year, which now is happening about every other year. He talked about gasoline prices because it sounded like he had a crew of maybe seven or eight guys, maybe two or three trucks. And he said, you know, my trucks are kind of old. They don't get grass. They don't get great gas mileage. And for hauling a bunch of stuff to the dump, you know, and then they get really bad mileage. And he said, you know, I vote for people that have my interests at heart. He said, I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat. He said, I can't find a Democratic candidate who just wants to talk about Republicans as racist. And my friends all vote for Democrats. And I said, well, what have they done for you? You know, you think they're doing a good job? 
all our kids go to the same school and we all talk about crime and we all talk about, gosh, there's not going to be water this summer. We all talk about gasoline prices. I say, what have they done? And he says, then they don't say anything, but then they still turn around and vote Democrat. Um, so we see coming from an incredibly insightful individual um, who I think speaks for a lot of families because entrepreneurship, this fellow who's running his own business, is extremely high among Hispanic families. Um, they tend to be in middle income categories, 70, 80,000, maybe 90,000 household income. Both parents are working. They tend to be young. They tend to have more children. The issues that we talk about that are policy related hit home with them on steroids. So I do hope that we're going to start seeing some shifts. We're seeing changes in voter registration in many areas where Hispanics are transitioning away from registered Democrat to Republican. There's some remarkable changes in the state of Texas, very close to the border. This fellow even spoke about, um, he said, hey, I came here legally. It was really hard. So I don't have very much sympathy for people who sneak across the border. But it was a fascinating conversation. And it's, uh, yeah, in the, in the name of shameless self-promotion, it's in California Mind this week. Let me uh, throw some numbers at you, Lee and Jonathan, to, to add on to this. Uh, if you go back to last year's recall um, election, uh, the recall against Governor Newsom, uh, you will find that Hispanic voters sided with the governor. They voted against the recall by a margin of approximately 60% to 40%. This is according to an NBC News exit poll. Uh, but let's put that in a, in a larger context. When Newsom ran for governor in 2018, he received 64% of the vote. So that's a 4% decline. And to put that in yet another contrast, uh, going back to the recall, Black voters in California uh, opposed the recall, about 83% opposed the recall. Asian voters, 64% opposed the recall. So Hispanics actually were a little more sympathetic to the recall than the other two uh, prominent minority groups. Uh, now, if we go to Imperial County, which is, I think, the most heavily Latino county in California, Lee and Jonathan, I think the population is about 80% Hispanic, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the recall uh, received 38%, uh, 38.7%. This is the recall of the governor uh, versus 36.1% uh, statewide. Hillary Clinton won Imperial County by 41 points in 2016. Joe Biden carried it by 25 points in 2020. Gavin Newsom carried it, if you will, um, by um, a 22.6% margin in the recall election. So something is going on here. It's not cataclysmic for Democrats, but it's, well, to use a coastal California metaphor, it's erosion, if you will. The cliff is slowly eroding. I think Lee and Jonathan, three things are going on here. Lee has kind of uh, alluded to at least two of those, and I'll add a third. Number one, uh, COVID is, is obviously a disruptor here. Uh, it's an economic disruptor, especially for Hispanic working class families who are not part of what uh, Peggy Noonan likes to call the laptop economy. Have laptop, will travel, will work. You know, work, Hispanic working class families just don't fall into that genre. Second issue, Lee and Jonathan, which uh, you mentioned, Lee, education. It's both for working class families. It is a government uh, offered form of daycare, if you will. But if you're an aspirational American, it sounds like the gentleman you talked to, Lee, is certainly aspirational. This is your kid's ticket up the ladder, education. So when the education suffers, you get mad and you go after the party that's in favor of locking out schools, that happens to be Democrats. Uh, factor number two, Lee and Jonathan, is inflation right now. If you look nationally for the top 15 congressional uh, targets for Republicans in 2022 are races that have heavy Mexican-American populations. So Republicans are looking at Latinos. And why is that? The number one concern among Hispanic voters is according to an Axios-Ipsos poll released in March, 
It's not abortion. It's not guns. It's inflation. A Quinnipiac poll uh, released in April found that just 26 percent of Hispanic voters approve of Joe Biden's job performance, the lowest mark of a demographic. So there is a problem. And let me throw in a third factor here and I'll end the filibuster culture wars. Uh, we had a big one here in California back in 2008, and that was Proposition 8. For those of you who are not too steeped in California, this was the definition of marriage. It very simply said that marriage is between a man and a woman, not two men, not two women. It's heterosexual. And you might remember that the uh, campaign running that featured an ad with a very kind of obnoxious then Mayor Gavin Newsom saying, it's coming whether you like it or not. Now, in this year, this was 2008, the year which Barack Obama got 61% of the California vote statewide. Prop 8 received 52.3%. Why did that happen? 70% of Black voters went with Prop 8, a surprise, and 53% of Latino voters. Why would that be Lee and Jonathan? They're culturally conservative. They're heavily Catholic. They they you know, abide by their faith. They don't care for this topic. So I would argue that you know the conversation, what's going on in schools in terms of what kids learn at K through five and so forth, it bothers Hispanic voters who are culturally conservative. So add those three factors up, COVID, inflation, and culture wars, Lee and Jonathan. And I think that's where the opening is. But Lee, you raised an interesting point. This begs for Republicans to actually have an agenda to offer, not just run against Joe Biden or run against Gavin Newsom, but actually have ideas. And that remains to be seen. Yeah, Bill, Bill, that remains to be seen. The California, the California Republican Party um, saying this in a nonpartisan fashion just hasn't done itself any any favors. Um, There's some, you know, there's some exceptionally good people, uh, Republicans within the state legislature, in the Senate and the Assembly. Lots of good ideas, great energy. but, you know, Bill, um, I'm trying to remember, yeah, the, the, his name is escaping me now, but um, the party for, for this, you know, for the, for the primary coming up in a week or two, um, who did the Republican Party, who, who are they throwing their support behind? It's a fellow who, um, I think, what, from Northeastern California? Um, it's state senator from Northern California. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, you know, uh, uh, I mean, a couple of people within the party have, have 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 asked me, "Hey, what should we be doing?" And I said, "Here in California, the easiest thing you have to do is literally, no matter how you feel about Donald Trump, um, uh, uh, you just you know you're going to have to walk away from him because that is just the most obvious and cheapest and easiest thing for the Democratic Party to say, whether it's true or not." Um, Larry Elder recall uh, you know recall candidate. Um, a black fellow uh, whom I know quite well, who grew up, um, you know, poor as dirt, um, who experienced racism, um, whose dad worked two jobs and was gone pretty much every day of the week, um, was called the black face of white supremacy by the L.A. Times, um, right. written by probably a 30 year old white person who's never, who knows nothing, probably literally nothing next to nothing about black people. Um, so anyway, the California Republican Party has got a lot of work to do. Um, well, the, well, the problem with Larry Elderly was that, you know, it, it was very simple for the Newsom campaign. Just run that photo, which they did 24-7 of, of elders standing next to Trump, both grinning with a thumbs up. I mean, that is that's death because Donald Trump is historically awful in California. But I think lead the solution here. There's an answer, and it's in Orange County. If you look back in 2018, Republicans won two uh, very high profile, uh, 2020, excuse me. They won two very high profile congressional races, one uh, woman named Young Kim and the other woman named Michelle Steele. 
What do they have in common? They're Asian American, and they spoke very much to the immigrant experience in California. There was authenticity there. And I think if you're going to improve the Hispanic vote in California, you need to go out and find more Hispanic candidates who can relate to the experience. Um, it's very difficult for white politicians to go into minority communities and do this, especially Republicans. It has a certain element of pandering to it. It just doesn't look very authentic. Uh, oftentimes, you find candidates going in there with very garbled Spanish. It's just kind of a painful thing to watch. So I think that's the answer, just recruitment of better candidates. But it is interesting to see. You know, I've been in California since 1994, and that was the year of Prop 187, illegal immigration in California. And so for years, having worked for Governor Wilson, who supported that uh, initiative, I've had to um, listen to talk about how the California um, Republican Party is forever dead because of the Hispanic vote. They'll never come back. But I think this, you know, these, these topics we've raised in terms of COVID, in terms of education, in terms of inflation in the economy, there's an opening there for Republicans if they do figure uh, a smart way to exploit it. And that's going to be the question. Can they be smart enough to figure out how to exploit it? Yeah, exactly. There's an opening. And I think there's potentially many openings throughout the state for this. Mm-hmm. But they got to figure out, you know, they got to figure out how to how to turn the door handle. If they do, then there's there's a lot of space they can they can uh, they can advocate for. Yeah. Bill, let's move to your California on your mind column this week. Uh, you talk about AB 1655, authored by Assemblywoman Akila Weber, a Democrat from La Mesa and Assembly. And Reggie Jones Sawyer, a Democrat from Los Angeles, that would make Juneteenth commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African Americans an official state holiday on June 19th right. and push out President's Day um, as a state holiday. State holiday. Uh, the California Globe reports that under the bill, state employees, public schools, community colleges, and all California universities will be given time off to pay that day. Right. Um, could, you, could you describe some of the um, the impacts of, of what you think this bill might be? I think the main impact is Abraham Lincoln, plain and simple. Uh, a little background here. So um, we are in a period in the uh, in Sacramento State Legislature right now. Last week was a deadline for getting bills out of committee and moving them to the floor. This week is the deadline for getting them off the floor and moving to the other chamber, if you will. So it's, it's winners and losers, plain and simple. And I think there are about 220 losers last week, bills that did not make it out of committee, and about 700 bills that did live to see another day. Two of these pertained to President's Day, which I'll get to in a minute. The first one was a bill. AB 1872, uh, which would have replaced uh, President's Day in February as a state holiday with instead uh, Election Day as a holiday. And this one, Lee and Jonathan, just kind of drives me up the wall uh, for the following reason. I'm not anti-voting, if you will, but and I like the idea in some respects of a holiday for Election Day to celebrate democracy. But here in California, we give everybody a ballot and leave probably received yours as I have. You get a ballot a month out if you're a registered voter. So the idea that people are inconvenienced to vote here in California is greatly exaggerated. If you, it's as simple as sitting down and marking your ballot and throwing it back in the mail. I think it's even a self-stamped envelope, Lee. So it's the state could not make it any easier for you. So I'm not sure I understand the need to, uh, to uh, make a holiday for it necessarily. Um, but there would be a loser in this. And that would be Abraham Lincoln, which takes us to the second bill you mentioned. Jonathan, AB 1655. Uh, This would make Juneteenth, June 19th, a state holiday. You mentioned state workers benefiting. The legislature loves to give state workers a day off, but it's a a zero-sum game. If you're going to put in a new holiday, you got to take away a holiday. And so they looked at 
President's Day. And who's the loser when you take away President's Day? It's George Washington, whose birthday is in February, but also Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, the man who freed the slaves. And so you're celebrating the end of slavery, which is what Juneteenth is, uh, by taking away a celebration of the man who did the Emancipation Proclamation. So go figure. Interesting thought here, Lee. This is kind of a wicked thought on my part. Uh, There is one holiday you could take away to make Juneteenth possible. March 31st, Cesar Chavez Day. Uh, you're going to see heads imploding in Sacramento and Democratic lawmakers who'd have to choose between offending either Black voters or Hispanic voters by doing this. But uh, it's just the um, the march in uh, Sacramento, and you kind of wonder, geez Louise, is this really the most important thing that lawmakers have their mind on right now, trying to figure out a new state holiday? Yeah, the um, agree completely. There's uh, yeah, so this kind of comes down to priorities and what can state lawmakers do to reduce the cost of living in California, to improve this effectiveness, uh, to improve the effectiveness of state government, to make life better uh, for those, you know, for those outside the Mark Zuckerberg class um, who have money to burn. And um, yeah, this isn't, this isn't going to move the needle. And, you know, Bill, what's, uh, what, uh, just as a postscript on Cesar Chavez day, um, you know, he is, uh, he is widely praised within the state for his advocacy of farm workers um, and, and, you know, absolutely correct. On the other hand, Cesar Chavez today would be canceled because Chavez, um, being a pretty good economist, understood that the demand for his workers, his United Farm Workers, and the compensation they received would be incredibly damaged. Should should Mexicans come across the border, come into California, work as undocumented farm workers because that would put downward pressure on the compensation of the United Farm Workers. So Chavez worked as hard as he could, and he recruited essentially everybody within the United Farm Workers to report about Mexicans crossing the border illegally and working in on California agriculture in an undocumented faction, and he called them wetbacks because they would they would sneak across going through the river. Um, so that's a derogatory term; it's one you don't hear anymore. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you think about when you think about these issues and saying, "Hey, we're going to push aside Abraham Lincoln," um, it uh, you know, Bill, you just end up shaking your head for just for so many reasons. Well, Abraham Lincoln just has a tough go of it in California. Uh, California, by the way, I think being a non-slave state during the Civil War, if I'm not mistakenly. Uh, remember, we lived through last year the uh, controversy in San Francisco where they were going to take Abraham Lincoln High and renamed it. And finally, they came to their senses and uh, and stopped doing that. And George Washington was on the chopping block there as well. But here we are a year later, and it seems like Honest Abe, once again, is going to get spanked by uh, by people in government in California. The poor guy just can't get a break. I just can't get a break. Um Arguably, arguably the best president in the history of the United States. I think certainly among people who study this in the yeah. top three. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's constantly fighting to maintain recognition. Um, the country would, would look very different today without him. And there's one other question here. And again, I don't want people to get the impression I'm either uh, uh, anti-Cesar Chavez or anti-Juneteenth. Uh, but uh, President's Day is, of course, one vast exercise in what? commercialism. It's just President Day sales. Go buy a car, go buy a mattress. Lee, are we going to have a Juneteenth you know, saving sale? Boy, if anything sounds tacky, it's that. Let's celebrate a day commemorating the end of slavery by going out and buying stuff. Yeah, this, um, 
you know, again, this is, um, and not making a statement about the importance of that day, and it certainly is important, um, but um, this is the legislature engaging in what it does best, sadly, uh, which is virtue signaling. Um, nine, nine out of 10 things I see that come out of the legislature are virtue signaling. Um, I wish it was different. Uh, maybe we're maybe Hispanic voters who who are thirty percent of the voting block and who um, you know and who share a lot in common uh, in terms of self interest with um, voters of Asian descent, which is another sixteen percent of the voting block. They're pretty much close to the median voter in California now. Highly entrepreneurial, care a lot about school quality. Um, yeah, I'm just, I keep my fingers crossed. We're going to start seeing some progress. I think we're starting to see some green shoots. Um, but yeah, the legislature never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> it's just how silly, how silly they can get. This week, uh, Governor Newsom said that NIMBYism is, uh, you know, putting pressure, uh, is destroying uh, California by not allowing um, uh, for more uh, development of homes. Um, earlier this year, uh, AB 1910 was advanced by the California State Assembly. Gentlemen, what do you think the fate of a AB uh, 1910 and the, um, the what, what do you think the future is of home development in California? Well, um, AB 1910 is dead uh, now. Uh, it was killed, uh, did not advance out of committee. And uh, I'm going to get Lee's thoughts on this because this is kind of a good metaphor for what's wrong with California and housing. So, Jonathan, you mentioned Governor Newsom complaining about NIMBYism. Uh, here's what he said. There's an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, and he said the following, quote, taxpayers deserve more in terms of results, not just inputs. NIMBYism is destroying the state. We're not going to We're going to demand more from our counties and cities. What he was referring to, Lee and Jonathan, was housing, the lack of progress on the housing front. And why does the governor sound angry? Because he is running for re-election and he is in a positively defensive crouch at this moment. Here's why. Gavin Newsom ran for governor in 2018, promising a Marshall Plan, uh, as he called it, for affordable housing. 3.5 million new housing units by 2025. That's about 500,000 units a year to do that over seven years. Production right now, um, and Lee can confirm this, is about 15 to 20% of that rate. So it's woefully behind. Uh, here's the problem. Here's one of the reasons why. Let's go back to the assembly and the aforementioned AB 19. This bill would have proposed that California's Department of Housing and Community Development grant to local agencies that agree to convert municipally owned, these are public golf courses, municipally owned public golf courses, to convert them to housing and public access, accessible open space. Um, the state would have given them money to do so. So this is Sacramento giving communities money to take green, green spaces and golf courses and build housing. And there are about uh, 250 locally owned uh, golf courses in California would have applied for this. Uh, it got shot down. It got shot down. Why? It turns out that there's actually a pretty strong golf lobby, of all things, in Sacramento. Name the lobby. There seems to be one. And yes, duffers get uh, up in arms. I don't play golf, by the way. I'm not anti-golf, but just this just shows you the extent of special interest in Sacramento. So here's the problem. If you kill this bill, fine. Let's keep the golf courses. Yay. More people play golf. But you deny that acreage for housing. And here's the problem. That acreage could have created about 375,000 units of housing, according to one legislative analyst analysis I saw. So, Lee, what's going to happen here? The governor's claimed 3.5 million housing, uh, new housing units. If he gets 25, 20% of the way there, that is what, one-fifth? That's what, 700,000 units? Um, why can't California build homes, Lee? Well, California is not building homes. They could build homes, but the governor and those in Sacramento are choosing to keep up the most important roadblocks on Pedmas building homes. Yeah. Um, 
Bill, I, lo I, lo I love that you brought up um, Newsom's most prominent platform promise during his 2018 campaign, which was the, quote, Marshall Plan, unquote, for housing. Right. Um, and he went out and um, I think he hired McKinsey, uh, the consulting group, to do a study. And consulting groups come back with long reports, with lots of appendices and lots of footnotes. And they estimated something like three and a half million housing units were needed. So then Gavin comes out and says, we're going to build these 3.5 3, 3 million housing units. Um, and he is not 10%. He's not 20%. He's not 50% below his campaign promise. He is uh, somewhere, as you noted, between 15 to 20% um, right. there. 80%, 80 75% to 80% below. It's, you can't paint it as anything other than an abject failure to deliver on a campaign promise. Right. And yes, we had COVID. And yes, that slowed down everything, including building housing. But Newsom's first year uh, before COVID was one in which he was 85% below the below his promise. Um, and Bill, if um, you know, politicians have, have, have asked me, hey, uh, if you could make one change, one change, to be able to create more housing, what would it be? And my response is simply, hey, reform CEQA. It's a badly written law. And CEQA is the acronym for California Environmental Quality Act. Right. Um, and uh, that would do so much more to build housing. Um, and yet, and, and Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kalakis is from a building family. And she often talks about the importance of reforming CEQA. And lawmakers often put in pet projects in their own communities where they exempt CEQA. Um, this is something that's standing right in their face. It can be done, uh, but they refuse to address it. Yeah, so you're seeing two things here, Lee. One is uh, it's far easier to campaign than it is to govern. It's very easy to say you're gonna build 3.5 million new housing units, but then when it comes to time to actually figure out how to do it, uh, he doesn't really have a plan for doing it. Um, and there's a theme here for Newsom, big promises when he ran for office. He, remember, he was going to do single-payer health care, for example, and that died on the vine and under his watch. Uh, there was going to be dramatic action on water. Uh, what did we see in Orange County on a past podcast? We talked about uh, whether or not they're going to do desalination in Huntington Beach, the California Coastal Commission, uh, uh, 86, that idea. Um this leads to this issue with California. Is the governor going to lead? Because remember back in 2018, his campaign language says specifically he would, quote, lead the effort. And now if you see what he said with the Chronicle, he is now dumping this on the counties and cities saying they've got to get their act together. So that's kind of the question here, Lee. Is Newsom going to, and we've seen this with COVID, by the way, as well, just letting the counties sort of do their own thing. Is he going to just let counties decide what to do on housing and kind of do a 58-county patchwork effort on this? Or is he going to invoke the bully pulpit? And I go back to one thing, as I've worked for California a governor in a past life, there is such a thing as a special session, and there is such a thing about focusing on the one topic. And I think moving into 2025, uh, 2023, assuming he's reelected, which I think he will be, will housing come roaring back as an issue or not? Will he show really the leadership on it or just snipe at it in interviews like he did with the Chronicle? Um, yeah, Bill, you know, the it's, it's fascinating that, um, that the major newspapers in the state, San Jose Mercury, LA, uh, the LA Times, um, San, San Francisco Chronicle, they've come out with their uh, election endorsements. Um, and I'm not surprised, and so, you know, not surprisingly, the Chronicle is endorsing Newsom. Mm -hmm. um, Mercury, which, which I think is the more middle of the road, more sensible, more deep thinking media source, uh, also is endorsing Newsom. 
But go back to your point about Gavin is not only long on promises, but my goodness, is he excited about them? Is he passionate about them? Right. I, I can't think of anybody who would be in that job who could be more of a vocal leader. But when it comes down to actually being a leader who delivers, there's really there's there's nothing there. Um, and Gavin bounces around from topic to topic to topic. And what I worry about is housing is going to be an afterthought because there really is, you know, given just how important CEQA is and giving all the other problems that we face within the state in terms of trying to build more housing, there's very little progress, I think, tangibly he can make, uh, even within four years. Um, so it's not in his interest to really be making this the big, the big push anymore. It was when he first ran. Um, you know, Bill, before we started, I was looking up um, median home prices, not along California coast, where we, we know it's remarkably expensive, but, but I went to Fresno. I went to Fresno on Zillow, which remains a somewhat depressed economic community. Um, and I checked out, you know, what $500,000, $600,000 could buy you in the city of Fresno. And, it's rem- and I was shocked. It is remarkably little. Um, And so, Bill, I think what we're going to see is more and more people leaving California. Those who come in are either going to be poor immigrants who are hoping they get the lottery ticket uh, and make it big or extremely wealthy people who are retiring and want to come to a nice climate. Those people we talked about earlier in the $80,000, $90,000 household income area, they're going to be going elsewhere because... You go to the, you know, you there's 35, 40 states where where $500,000, buys you a gorgeous house. Uh, the median home price in the United States, somewhere around $350,000. Um, in California, you just, you know, maybe somewhere out in Hesperia, somewhere in the corner of the Northeast where no one is. Um, but I think, I think Gavin, I think, I think housing is, I think the solutions are there. Well, we're not going to get them. And I think Gavin probably is at the end of the day is not going to care because he is not going, he's not going to benefit. It's just, even if it happens, it's going to be after his watch is over. Yeah. And watch his campaign ads. Lee. I'll, I'll boldly predict here that uh, to the extent he runs a lot of ads, he doesn't really need to, to get reelected, but he will run ads. It's going to be a lot of virtual signaling and a lot of, you know, talk about protecting abortion rights in California. A lot of talk about climate change, if you will. A lot of talk now about uh, gun control, given the events in Texas this week. He's not going to do much in the way of economics, Lee, because there's just not a good picture there to pay between getting back to your uh, conversation with your, uh, your Hispanic friend. Not a lot to talk about with regards to inflation, but also just terms of quality of life, which what housing is all about. So, you know, that's going to be part of the Newsom legacy unless he starts changing his, his focus in another direction. Exactly right. And when uh, I read I read the Mercury's endorsement for Newsom and I read the Chronicle's endorsement and the themes were remarkably similar. Um, and I'm not taking issue with them endorsing the governor. What I do take issue with is if you read, I encourage people to read these, these endorsements. You read those endorsements, there's really nothing there that would support an endorsement for Newsom other than he was sitting in the office right? and things didn't completely blow up under COVID. Um, there were 49 other governors that had to deal with COVID. The California economic downturn during COVID was among the very worst. Unemployment within California rose to a level that was higher than all but three states. 
two of which were Hawaii and Nevada, which were completely shut down from their very important tourism industries. <laughs> so so uh, among those non-tourist destination states, um, California was the second worst, the worst being Michigan. Um, and you read those endorsements and um, really there's just a remarkable lack of content. And the endorsements perhaps unwittingly talk about all his deficiencies, the fact that schools were so late to open, right. the fact that housing hasn't been addressed, um, the fact that living costs continue to go up. But nevertheless, um, it's, Newsom, it's Newsom for governor. And California's not going to change until voters start saying, I need, I, need, I need a candidate who I can vote for, who actually has some accomplishments that I can believe in, that I can buy, I can buy into. One final thought, then we can move on to a new topic, Lee. I've seen this movie before, and uh, it's Gray Davis. And in California parlance, uh, every modern governor wants to be Pat Brown. They want to be remembered as the great builder. And they all live in fear of being Gray Davis, the guy who got recalled. And we are approaching now the 20th anniversary of Gray Davis's reelection in 2002. And Lee and Jonathan, when Davis ran in 1998, he ran against Dan Lundgren, the sitting attorney general. He crushed him by 20 points. He ran for re-election in 2002 against uh, Bill Simon, a former Hoover Institution overseer, by the way, a first-time candidate, and not the most bold of candidates, if you will. And uh, Davis got by, uh, won by about 4.75 points at the most. It was not a oppressive re-election, and it was very much what Lee just mentioned in terms of endorsements. Diane Feinstein did a commercial for Gray Davis Lee in which she did not say his name. She literally said, I endorse the governor. <laughs> she would not say the words Gray Davis. Lee, this was a California that had a lot of problems at the time. It was a California in the middle of a recession. It was a California that had just seen a large surplus. A boom went bust and the first tech bubble burst. And California suddenly was running a shocking deficit. And on top of that, Lee, we had rolling blackouts before that. And so Davis looked like something of a sad sack at the time. And that's what made him easy pickings for Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not suggesting another recall effort is going to come against Gavin Newsom in the near future. But I would just suggest, Lee and Jonathan, that some of the elements for the stew are kind of already showing up in the pot that we are looking at a summer where there's a strong chance of having rolling blackouts. Um, if this market continues to go south as it has been, those of us who hold stocks just hate to look at our stocks each day because this is painful. That $97 million billion surplus, Lee, could very soon turn to a deficit if all the capital gains revenue starts drying up in California. So now he has a problem with the budget. And on top of that, California just might just think that this governor doesn't have the answers. So all the swell times he's been living through, all the all the you know, all the high road he was on having survived the recall, it can all turn rather fast. And so, you know, he may and he'll end up winning, I think. But this is an FAX. You talked to some of the candidates running against him, it's their strategy. It might be a rather unoppressively election that he could go from winning by over 20 points to winning by, you know, by less than double digits. Uh, and it'll be interesting, especially to see that, Jonathan, because um, all of this talk about the Newsom presidential campaign, which is coming up, uh, uh, he also in that same interview with The Chronicle, he said that he has, I think, sub-zero interest in uh, in running for the presidency. And uh, I worked again for Pete Wilson in 1994 to use another parallel. Wilson was running for re-election. He did one debate with Kathleen Brown, Jerry Brown's sister, Pat Brown's daughter, as California is kind of one small family politically, it seems. And he was asked by Jim Boren, who is a reporter at the Fresno Bee, are you going to run for president? Wilson looked down and he said, no. Fast forward six months later, Pete Wilson is running for president. As did Jerry Brown twice uh, as a sitting governor, a third time in 1992. If 
time and not passed by uh, Jerry Brown in 2016, he would have run again. Uh, but I probably need to amend that lead because I think Jerry Brown was 78 years old in 2016 and we just elected a guy who was 78 years old. So maybe Jerry missed the boat. Maybe his time was there. But the point is, California governors just seem to have this attraction to running for the presidency, if you will. The governor made Governor Newsom may deny it all he wants to, but the temptation is there because he picks fights with Florida. He picks fights with Texas. He calls out his party for not being sufficiently tough. It's very tempting for him to want to hit the road and produce himself as a, as a president. And to the extent he says he doesn't want to be president, I'm sorry. You guys might remember those uh, mirrors they used to put out for Time Magazine where it said, you know, Time Man of the Year underneath it. You can see yourself in the picture. Ha, ha, ha. I think every president, every would-be governor in America wants to be president has a mirror like that, only it has hail to the chief underneath it. So uh, I don't think the man has Potomac fever yet, but I really don't buy it when he says he does that presidential aspirations. They all want to be a president. He runs a nation. He runs a nation state. He'd like to run a nation. What do you think, Lee? Yeah, it's, 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 hard, for, it's hard for a career politician who's been successful and, yeah. and Newsom has been successful, um, you know, certainly in terms of getting elected. It's hard for a career politician to say no to something like that. And you look at the Democratic Party and you look at 2024 and you look at a sitting president whose approval ratings, I think they're below Trump's now. Mm-hmm. I think they're I think they're in the somewhere in the somewhere in the mid to high 30s. Um, who's close to 80 in an economy where inflation is now out of control an economy in an, in an economy which is slowing down, all the seeds are sown for the need and the demand for someone new. And so um, if given the opportunity, I just can't see Newsom. I can't see Newsom saying saying no to to, to something like that. Um, and then Bill, just to touch back on on Gray Davis and um, and his very rapid decline in politics, um, that was a time when, yeah, as you noted, electricity was extremely expensive. Um, the, uh, the gas tax, gas tax went way up. Uh, and yes, we're riding high now with a nearly $100 billion surplus. Um, but stock market doesn't always go up and recessions are not a thing of the past. And California has a revenue system that is hardwired. Mm-hmm. It is hardwired to completely tank when the stock market goes down and when there's a recession. And the chances of those two events occurring go up every day. So sadly for California, we could be in for some difficult times in another three or four months. And again, I just remind people, things can change here in a hurry. Steve Lopez is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He was a reporter for Time Magazine before that. And he wrote a column or he wrote a story on Gray Davis, a feature piece for the magazine. And the headline was the most daring governor in America, Uh, Lopez hated the headline. He told he just would not have written it that way. But it was this incredibly laudatory piece about how Davis was investing all the surplus money wisely. And you might remember, Lee, he had a plan to, uh, I think, make uh, teachers in California taxes, if I'm not mistaken, which if you're going to run for president, it's a really good way to start, by the way, by kissing up to the National uh, Education Association. So he was hailed as this great conquering hero, uh, one year into office. And then by year four, he was scraping by for a reelection. And year five, he was gone. Again, it's not necessarily going to be the plight of Gavin Newsom. It's a different state in terms of voter registration. I'd be shocked if the race really were that close. But again, the fortunes can change. One final thought about Newsom, though, we could move on. He's still a relatively young man. He was born in 1967, I believe, guys. So he's, what, uh, pushing 55 right now. You look at recent governors, um, Pete Wilson, who I worked for, 
faded away. George Machian preceded him, faded away. Jerry Brown, who left office in 2019, he's largely off the radar, though. Keep an eye on this story. Newsom keeps taking pot shots at him over various things that he claims he inherited. At some point, Jerry's going to lash back on that. But these are gentlemen who are well into their 70s, and I think Brown was 80 when they left office. But Newsom's going to be 61 years old, 60, 61 by the time he leaves office. That's still plenty of time to run for national office or something else. And so one school of thought is that he goes back into the private sector, and maybe he and his his wife trying to become the new uh, Duke and Duchess of Montecito, coming down to you, Lee, and just kind of living the woke good life down there. I just think that when politicians get this close to the presidency and just have this kind of ambition, it's hard to walk away from it, especially with reporters and columnists and a lot of opportunistic consultants saying, Gavin, you're the man. Gavin, you're the man. And uh, and Bill, if, um, if, if Pennsylvania, if he's thinking the back doesn't mind about Pennsylvania Avenue, then I don't think he can afford to go private sector. Um, yeah. He will fade away. And, and just, you know, I mean, you've been in politics for so long. The speed at which people fade away in politics is just remarkably fast. I mean, during the Democratic during the Democratic primary um, in 2018, um, Antonio Villaraigosa, uh, mm-hmm. former L.A. mayor, um, gained virtually zero traction. And... Mm-hmm. As someone who doesn't work in the sphere of politics, uh, you know, I had anticipated Villaraigosa would have been a very, very viable candidate, um, given the Latino voting base, um, given that he was pretty popular as L.A. mayor. um, And yet he had just seemed like he had been used up and tossed away and he couldn't do anything for the life of him to gain to gain voter traction. So, um, I don't know. So it's, it's, it seems like the half life of being a retired politician. I mean, you can you can pretty much just kiss goodbye future political opportunities from what I've seen. So not to detour too far, but the Villaraigosa episode is interesting because now we're seeing it replay with Eric Garcetti, his successor, who has been for two years in political limbo, uh, trying to become the next U.S. ambassador to India. And that uh, nomination will not move forward because there is a scandal within his office about uh, sexual harassment. And what did the mayor know? He not, He's not accused of it. One of his aides is. And the question is the Watergate fashion is what did the what did the mayor know and when did he know it? And so um, he doesn't have uh, 50 votes to be confirmed right now. So he's stuck. I think his parents just uh, paid for a PR firm to come in and try to push him over the edge. So he's out of office anyway this year. There's a mayor's race in Los Angeles. He can't get the uh, the nomination to India. And very much like uh, Villaraigosa, who you might remember Lee in his uh, last couple of years in office, tried desperately to get a job in the Obama administration. He was angling to be the transportation secretary. He couldn't get it. And once he couldn't get that, he was kind of politically a dead man walking. He did challenge Newsom in the, uh, in the 2018 primary, actually made it to the runoff against him, but couldn't get... Uh, over the t- excuse me, he couldn't make the runoff. He finished third uh, behind uh, John Cox, and that was kind of the end of his career. So now he's making good money. I imagine the private sector, but again, it just shows how you know, just like just uh, like an orchid, I guess, he can blossom and then very quickly disappear. Very quickly disappear. Elsewhere in uh, Sacramento, gentlemen, a bipartisan bill introduced by Democrat Buffy Wicks of uh, the Oakland area and Republican Jordan Cunningham of the San Luis Obispo area, uh, Santa Barbara area as well, is advancing out of the state assembly. Uh, It's an addendum and it deals with childhood addiction to social media, specifically would allow parents to sue social media companies up to 25,000 for their kids' uh, online and screen addiction. Addiction is defined as those under 18 who are harmed physically, emotionally, developmentally, and materially by their use of social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or TikTok. Uh, My personal belief has always been that this sort of discipline 
begins in the home um, and it should be the parent uh, on the parent to regulate the use of personal electronic device and social media. But this is an interesting case because each side of the aisle has an interest in regulating big tech. The left argues that certain types of extreme speech should be limited on social media and the right believes it has been unfairly, that they've been unfairly censored. Uh, gentlemen, do you, what, how do you think big tech emerges from attacks on both sides of the aisle in this case, in terms of California state policy? First, let me expand on the bill a little bit. Then I want to get uh, back to you two guys, because you two are raising children right now. I'm not. And so we should probably turn this into something of a parent's corner to talk about how you deal with screen time. But yeah, so it's AB 2408. And uh, what it does is, as Jonathan mentioned, allows California parents to sue social media uh, up to $25,000. So it's a remarkably cheap pain and suffering kind of uh, accusation, if you will. That's uh, uh, pain and suffering caused by kids, you know, alleged screen addiction. It defines screen addiction, by the way, and this is kids under under 18. So it's a limited audience, but it's under 18. And, it, and addiction is defined as any harm, physical, mental, emotional, or developmentally or materially. Uh, there's one other clause in this, by the way, it only applies to companies with gross revenue in excess of a hundred million dollars last year. So Lee, we're going after a very small group of people. You're basically going after three culprits here, Facebook, which includes Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. So there you go. So as, Lee, as Jonathan mentioned, it's bipartisan. Uh, there's a conservative Republican from San Luis Obispo, in addition to Buffy Wicks, who's a liberal Democrat from the San Francisco East Bay, Berkeley is in her district. But I think, Lee, it just shows one thing, that big tech is just a big, juicy target these days for both parties. Yeah, it's a big, juicy target. Interesting bipartisan, bipartisan ideas on this. And the bill is written so amorphously, I, I don't think it'll get out of committee. I could yeah. be wrong on that. Um, no, no, it's, uh, it's, it's it actually got out of the assembly. It's on its way to the oh, Senate. Oh, got out of the assembly. Okay, okay. Well, I'm, yeah, there's another one of those I'm wrong on. Um, but it is very amorphously written. Um, I think it'll be difficult you know, how do you prove or disprove something like that in the sense that, hey, Mike, you know what, my kid's been messed up ever since they've been clicking on clicking on TikTok or Facebook. Um, well, and, and who want, proves it? And who proves it? Is it, a, is it a child psychologist? Is it an MD who says that your kid is quote unquote addicted? So um, so there you are. But uh, so, yeah, so big tech, but also, guys, just talk a bit about yourselves here in terms of how you deal with your kids and screen time. I'm so I'm in South Carolina right now visiting my sister and kind of living vicariously through her in terms of parenting and grandparenting. She has these four little precious grand uh, grandkids are all boys between the ages of five and three, and they like to get on the screen. The three year old came running into my room the other day and starts yelling videos. That's his word for turn on your laptop. I want to watch YouTube. Um, you can say he's addicted. No, he's not addicted. They're active kids that go outside. If you took away their screens for a week, they would live. But, you know, what are your guys' policies in terms of, you know, how often you let your, your kids, you know, go onto a phone or a laptop or an iPad? Well, Bill, I've, uh, my youngest is 15. And, you know, so he has a, he has a cell phone and he is, uh, you know, I pick him up from school. Or I take him to school and it's on that thing, clicking on various things, ranging from sports sites to, you know, all sorts, all sorts of different things, um, to uh, to training, to personal training, and how you you know he plays tennis, he plays basketball, plays golf. How you can get better at these sports, um, but you know at the age of fifteen, you know my wife and I trust him to have good judgment. Um, for small children, is something much different, um, and they're parents are exercising what you hope is what you hope is good judgment. You hope it doesn't become the pseudo babysitter. 
and it may, and that may be the issue in families where time is very very scarce uh, in terms of supervising children. So um, it becomes an issue. Jonathan, you have little kids though, right? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my oldest is four, and I have a three year old and a two year old. And uh, I think my general philosophy has been, um, you know, you know, kids do what they see. So if they see the parent on their device a lot, they're gonna wanna they're gonna want to uh, do the same thing. So it's I think our philosophy has been, you know, you know, limiting the use of, you know, personal devices around them. And um, I, you know, I, a college professor um, uh, of business, you know, not, not of child psychology, but he, he reads a lot about these issues because he has um, students, but he, he, he was telling me that uh, kids uh, are formed within the first five years, their mm-hmm. development is formed within the first five years. So making sure that they have, um, you know, basic educational skills is really important within that first five-year period. So, um, you know, judging from my conversations with him and, you know, some other parents, um, social media and, you know, being on screen too long, um, it's, you know, it's possible that, you know, it limits the possibility of, um, you know, real social interaction that, you know, if a kid is, you know, on his device all the time, he's, they're going to develop, you know, they're not going to, their, their social skills are going to be stunted over time. And, you know, I think also too, if, you know, a kid that early is addicted to, um, you know, addicted to their, addicted to their personal device, um, then, you know, they won't be doing other things. They won't be doing other things like, you know, building, you know, putting together puzzles, you know, my four-year-old, you know, she can look at, you know, look at an iPhone screen and, you know, scroll through photos, but I, but I prefer her to, you know, figure out a puzzle, you know, you know, just the other day, she, um, she figured out how to, um, you know, put together a puzzle of all 50, of all 50 states, in the United States. And she's perfectly content and, you know, doing those, uh, doing those exercises that require uh, critical, uh, critical thinking. So those are my general, my general thoughts on that. Your and, daughter probably, your daughter probably should be voting. <laughs> Most adults would probably couldn't spot the 50 states. But uh, look, I think there's a role for screens in this regard. If uh, Jonathan is driving across his new state of Arizona and the kids are in the back seat, I don't see anything wrong, Jonathan, with hanging a couple of um, tablets from the back seat and letting them watch movies a couple hours. So therefore, you're spared from two hours. Are we there yet? That's fine. But if your kid just is first uh, instinct on a sunny day is, you know, can I watch videos? No, go outside and play. I think the bill may be headed this regard. It's something we didn't talk about today. The courts uh, not too long ago struck down a California law passed by the legislature signed by Governor Brown, actually, which uh, mandates uh, creates a quota system for California companies, Lee and John them for their uh, for their boards uh, mandates that each board must have a certain amount of women on it. The court said, no, you can't do this. I wonder, Lee, um, since big tech we know has deep pockets and hires lawyers, if this is just one of those classic cases of the legislature passes it, the governor signs it, and guess what? It immediately goes into the courts, and perhaps the court just strikes us down. It's unconstitutional or just says it, you know, who can really decide what addiction is here? Yeah, and interesting enough, Bill, Brown, Brown signed that bill, even mm-hmm. though he acknowledged it would almost certainly be struck down by the courts. Uh, exactly. In which, which case is- you sort of say, yeah, where's the political leadership uh, in yeah. that? You know what? If something's, if, if something's not going to pass the court's test and we can know it at right now, I'm not going to push this through. Yeah. And governor signing laws that are really either bad ideas or just don't hold water constitutionally. That's another topic for another day. Uh, moving on to other um other uh, aspects of politics. Uh, the San Francisco Gates uh, political editor, Eric King, wrote an interesting piece about the upcoming June 7th primary. He analyzes whether the expected red wave this November will be felt 
in a democratic supermajority state uh, where beginning in 2012, um, California moved from a part from party-based primaries to the current system that rewards the two top vote, get, vote getters who run against each other in the general election. Um, this, this process has resulted in slightly more votes going to candidates unaffiliated with either of the major two parties. Ting writes, uh, quote, for the June 2022 primary, we expect a combination of occurrences from 2018 and 2010 to lead to a really scary looking to really scary looking numbers for Democrats. Uh, though those numbers might paint a more grim picture for the party than may be warranted. Uh, in 2010, Republicans nearly evened out the vote share during a national red wave. In 2018, the blue wave was imperceivable uh, in the primaries because there weren't any presidential candidates at the top of the ticket. Um, while Ting believes that the California Democratic turnout could still be high, possibly motivated by the leaked decision to overturn Roe versus Wade at the Supreme Court, there are more factors against Democrats than working in their favor. Gentlemen, uh, do you believe a, a potency of a red wave and the issue of abortion will drive turnout in both parties uh, this primary season? Or, and B, do you believe, do you think independents will make the cut in two specific races for governor and attorney general? Uh, the attorney general race is specifically interesting because an independent Sacramento district attorney, Anne-Marie Schubert, is running um, is running as an independent. And the New York Times, uh, Sumaya uh, Karlamanga notes how she gained fame for helping to catch the Golden State Killer so she right. could give Rob Bonta a run for his money. So, Bill, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's possible you could see both. You can see both the red wave uh, in California in terms of Republicans uh, motivated to vote, the so-called uh, uh, enthusiasm gap, as we, we talk about at midterm elections. Uh, but you could also see a strong Democratic turnout because of not just the abortion issue, but also what we referenced to earlier, which is the, the, the tragic story out of Texas, uh, guns and uh, two issues which do bring Democrats to the polls. Uh, but I think you hit on kind of the key question here, Jonathan. And by the way, this sounds kind of counterintuitive because we don't think of California as a swing state or a bellwether state. But this idea, especially Democratic enthusiasm, is huge because if there's not Democratic enthusiasm, they're going to take a shellacking on uh, on uh, Election Day. Uh, but I think you hit on the key here, Jonathan, which is um, the uh, the attorney general's race. But also I'd go back to the governor's race because there you also have a uh, an independent uh, NPP, uh, nonpartisan preference, as we say in, uh, in uh, California speak. And that's a fellow named Michael Schellenberger, who has uh, made a name for himself uh, as a um, as a very a, a smart uh, thinker uh, when it comes to homelessness, but also wrote a, a book uh, last year called San Francisco, which talks about how progressives have just run that city into the ground. So if we can see uh, Anne-Marie Schubert advance in the attorney general's race uh, as an independent, if we can see uh, Schellenberger uh, make the gubernatorial runoff as an independent, that speaks to, I think, two things. Number one, uh, candidate, uh, voters interested more than issues and personalities and party identification. Uh, and then secondly, really kind of the weak state of both parties in California. California nationally, and that um, voters are looking for an alternative. Yeah, and, and you know, Bill, it's interesting in uh, in the attorney general race, and and you know, and I wonder how many, you know, what what share of those who are voting are really going to know much about that race, know much about the candidates, yeah, um, and really be engaged about attorney general. But that said, um, I believe I read uh, that Bonta was paying for ads that in a sense were implicitly supporting Nathan Hockman, who is the Republican, who is the Republican running for uh, attorney general. The idea being that if Hockman advances in November, he will be an easier adversary for Bonta to beat than Schubert. 
Right. So you see this dynamic because it's a top two system in California. The top two finishers advance regardless of party affiliation. Uh, back in um, Palo Alto, where the Hoover Institution is, Anna Eschew is the uh, long-term uh, congresswoman there. She has been representing the district there for about 30 years. She's kind of like Nancy Pelosi. She's been in Congress for about 30 years or so. Uh, uh, she is pushing 80 as well. She's part of sort of the you know the gerontocracy in, in Washington, if you will. And she's running ads. You might think, well, wait a second. Why should she be spending a dime right now? Because she's going to make the runoff. I think what she's trying to do is this. She is trying to draw as much vote to her and away from Democratic alternatives because she is not as progressive as the uh, uneasy, restless left wing of her party would like. There is a fellow running. He's an attorney. He's sort of a Ro Khanna knockoff, a Bernie Sanders kind of politician. And I think she lives in fear of one thing. If she got into a November election against a fellow Democrat like that, and this is how Ro Khanna got into office. He unseated a, an incumbent Democrat running the same way. That candidate could sneak up on her. So she's doing exactly what I think you're suggesting here in the AG's race, Lee. She's trying to draw a Republican for the, uh, for the finals. Yeah, you know, political strategy goes far and wide, and uh, it's interesting what comes about when there's no party preference involved for the final runoff. Um, mm-hmm. And Bill, if I can just say, um, we, uh, from just purely a policy perspective and sensible economic thinking, we don't need another Ro Khanna type legislator, if I might be able to say that. I know Mr. Khan. I like him. He was kind of to do, kind of to a podcast with you a few years ago. But uh, needless to say, I don't necessarily see eye to eye with him on a lot of life's great issues. Well, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you again, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you, Jonathan Lee. Thank you, gentlemen. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Leo, Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at Hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Freudis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.